Welcome to the Trinity Table Talk podcast, a resource for Trinity Anglican Church out of Littleton, Colorado. It'll be the goal of this podcast to serve as a resource for theological education and spiritual reflection for all those who might listen. I'm Andrew Winnegar, and yet again, I'm joined by Father Tim Suits. It's good to be with you, Andrew. So last week, Tim, we talked about Thomas Cramner, the homily on justification, his Book of Common Prayer, so on and so forth. But we know that Thomas Cramner isn't the only figure in the English Reformation. What we learn in school is Henry VIII, but um, there's a lot more to the English Reformation than that. Can you tell me about like some of the attitudes, some of the movements that led up to the English Reformation before any of these figures were in the picture? Absolutely. Whenever we think about history, so often we think about it, you know, in our imaginations as a chapter in a book. It's a standalone chapter. We don't really care what happened before. We don't necessarily care what happened afterwards. We're looking at this moment in history as if there's such a thing as an, uh, you know, an isolated moment in history. But what we know is that every point in history had a long series of events and attitudes and social realities and economic realities that led up to it. You know, one of the ways I like to think about it is um, the original Star Wars movies were what I was raised on. You know, Luke and Leia and Han and Chewbacca and the gang, right? And then, you know, uh, George Lucas was like, I'm going to make a ton of money. I'm going to make some prequels uh, to tell how we got to this point. And they were pretty terrible, right? Even as a child, I remember being so excited as, you know, middle schooler going to see them and... And just walking out, being like, wow, those were great. And even knowing, no, they weren't. But now what we're seeing is they're doing it kind of again with these miniseries all over, you know, Disney and different things. Is like, you know, how is it that uh, Princess Leia got the uh, plans of the Death Star? You know, those had to get in her hands somehow. And, you know, that's why we have Rogue One and, and you know, this new series that's coming out about it and all that. I think that's that's more how history actually works. There is a long series of events that occurred to got, that got us up to the point that we all remember. What we all remember is Henry VIII wanting to, to divorce his wife, and all of a sudden, shebang, England becomes Protestant. But that's not the way history works, and that's not the way this history worked. Rather, in order to understand how it was that a kingdom was able to quickly adopt the doctrines of grace and Protestantism, we really have to understand uh, what academics and intellectuals broadly call humanism. Humanism, when we often hear that word, we tend to think of it in you know a 20th century sense of humanism. Humanism means someone that prioritizes humanity over God. But that's not at all what um, later Renaissance and early Reformation humanism meant. Rather, humanism was a return to ancient documents, to ancient sources. Whether that was, people began to read um, Homer in Greek itself. People began to read Seneca and Cicero in Latin. Um, Then later, people like Erasmus began to read the New Testament, not in Latin, but in Greek. And then they started to read the early church fathers in the original languages. 
and not just somebody else's commentary on them. This is what humanism called the return to the sources, or what you know later was called ad fontes. Um, people began to actually read old books, particularly old spiritual books, whether that was theology or the Bible itself, in their original languages. And then something interesting happened. They saw that Roman Catholic theologians were not necessarily engaging the original sources themselves, like the Bible or even the early church fathers. Rather, later medieval scholastics, often at the place called the University of Paris, the Sorbonne, they were commenting on commentaries which were commenting on commentaries, which were commenting on commentaries, where someone at some point actually read the original source, but we forgot who that was because it just was commentaries all the way down. It's like, you know, a group of people that have never actually seen the movie, but they're all talking about somebody else's review of the movie, right? Um, That's kind of what happened in medieval theology, and it led to something interesting. Much of uh, medieval theology was incredibly revisionistic. It wasn't actually uh, tethered to the Holy Scriptures themselves or even the early church tradition. And so there were a group of people called the humanists led by a man named Erasmus who translated the Bible from the Greek um, into modern language. Um, They actually began to read the the early church sources themselves. And then they began to see that much of the things that they were taught in seminary or in university by you know, these scholastic academics had really little to do with what Scripture actually said or even what the early church fathers actually said. And that's when we start to see a return to the sources, a return to the Scripture, and a return to understanding the basics of the Christian faith is about justification as they started to actually read Paul himself. So in order to understand Um, how the English Reformation occurred and how the Reformation occurred more broadly, we have to see a large group of people in normally the upper echelons of society who had been reading the Bible and had been reading early church fathers. And they began to question if what the Bible actually says and even what the early church fathers actually said and what the modern Roman Catholic Church of their time said if they were the same thing. And more often than not, people came to the conclusion that the Roman Catholic Church was an error and that there was reform needed to return to the original teachings of Scripture and the original teachings of the early church. Hmm. That's like, uh, it reminds me of William Tyndale, who, as as I was doing my research for this podcast, um, I fell in love with William Tyndale. Yeah, he's great. you know, the Michael Reeves in his lecture series has the retells the story of Tyndale talking to a Catholic priest and, and Tyndale at this point is a linguist, his his reading Erasmus's Greek New Testament, you know, falling in love with it. Um, and the Catholic priest hearing Tyndale's love for the scriptures is just utterly annoyed, beyond annoyed. And the Catholic priest at one point remarks, I much rather have the word of the Pope than your word of God. Mm. Uh, and Tyndale uh, comes back at him of like, I will work my hardest to make it so the boy who plows the fields knows the scriptures better than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
yeah, well, I mean, he did just that. He moved to Germany, uh, to Worms, where Luther had his famous declaration. Um, and he started work on an English New Testament from Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Yes, right. Uh, he didn't complete, but he worked a lot on an English Old Testament until he was later hunted down and killed because he was trying to put the, put the Bible in a common vernacular. That's right. Yeah, he was martyred in order to bring the word of God to God's people. And that's how much of a threat this Reformation humanistic tendency was to the established church, mm. that they were willing to send people to kill them in order to keep God's word out of their hands and to keep God's word even out of their ears. Because, you know, we have to remember that the mass was still done in Latin and the average person didn't understand it. And so the cry of uh, the humanists and the cry of the Reformation was, we need God's word as it actually is, not some later Latin translation, but the Greek as it actually was written in its original context and its original language. That word needs to be translated into English for God's people because God's word is powerful in forming the thoughts and minds of his people in order to form them into the image of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that, you know, the Reformation didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in the midst of this humanistic impulse to return to the actual sources themselves, and most significantly, to the Bible itself. We have a good understanding of what was the cultural movement leading up to the Reformation, both on the continent and in England. But I think it's good to talk about King Henry VIII. And to give some context for King Henry VIII, you know, he's like two generations removed from the War of Roses, which is a massive civil war uh, that was fought over inheritance. Who was going to inherit the crown? And so uh, in his marriage, he hadn't produced a male, male heir. Of course, there's probably tons of anxiety to produce a male heir because nobody wants a repeat of that civil war. And he wants to get a divorce. And we run into some problems with the Pope when it comes to getting that that whole marriage annulled. But he is somebody who has been previously praised by the Pope as a defender of the church because he wrote a book called um, A Defense for the Seven Sacraments that was written directly to Luther in which you know Luther didn't take very seriously because it was a joke of a book. But how did we get from a very... Catholic king just wanting a divorce to the product like the English Reformation. So the thing that we have to remember about Henry VIII is that Henry VIII was not a very good Protestant or he wasn't really a Protestant at all. Mm. Henry VIII saw Protestantism as a politically expedient means to an end to gain a divorce. However, the people around Henry VIII, Cramner in particular, who was his chaplain and his, the, you know, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the highest office uh, for a bishop in England, they saw it as an opportunity to capture Henry VIII's political drive towards a divorce for a true theological reform. So what you'll see is during the life of Henry VIII, 
you know, all the way up until 1547 when he died, there, there wasn't a deep reform in terms of Protestantism. There were half reforms, half measures that occurred over and over again. But some of the major things were, you know, the seizing of, you know, monasteries and all of their capital and all of their treasures. And that, you know, helped fund uh, substantial amounts of Henry VIII's um, kingdom and his power. Um, That was all political. But Cramner was behind the scenes trying to drive things toward actual reform for the salvation of God's people as they heard the gospel itself. But when that reform took root, and when it flew, were at two different times. Yes, it took root to some degree under Henry, but they were shallow roots. When it really spread its roots deep and wide and allowed for a great tree to blossom forth was under the child king, um, Edward VI. Some of you know Edward VI took power in 1547 after his dad died. You know, Henry finally got a son. Uh, He was only nine years old at the time. And he had these guys called Lord Protectors around him. And Lord Protectors were, you know, frankly, the people that were actually leading the kingdom because, you know, a nine-year-old probably shouldn't do that. And they understood that. And, you know, that was Somerset and Northumberland. And they were true Protestants. They were people that had been captured by the gospel of grace. And so this is the point in which Cramner can actually drive forward his true reforms to bring the word of God to God's people in England. And so the books of common prayer, the very the, the first one and the second one, 1549 and 1552, were under Edward VI. Um, we see, you know, the very beginning of the Articles of Religion, what we now call the 39 Articles, there were a different number at the time, that was driven forward under Henry VI. Um, they drove out many bishops that remained loyal to Rome and replaced them with Protestant bishops. Um, Protestant clergy were being trained at Oxford and Cambridge. The reform was truly beginning in earnest now that Henry VIII was out of the way because Henry could never actually leave his Roman sensibilities. He couldn't do it. But under Edward, Cramner, Latimer, Ridley, the reformers were able to drive forward and create the change that was needed for a true reformation in England. Hmm. And then it came to a screaming halt with Bloody Mary. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Tell me about that. Yeah, we all know who Bloody Mary is, right? She reigned from 1553 to 1558. You know, uh, Lady Jane Grey was right before her. That was a super sad, temporary sort of a thing. Um, But yeah, Mary takes office and she does... What you would expect from someone that was an actual Roman Catholic, she tried to re-Catholicize England. And so she's the one who tortured Cramner to the point where he recanted his Protestant beliefs under torture. Always remember that. I mean, under severe torture. And then when he finally got his mind back after the torture, he recanted his recantation, burned his hand first. If you ever see a picture of Cramner, he'll always see his hand going into the flames. Um, the hand that had offended God, he wanted to be burned first. Then we have Latimer and Ridley and, and Hooper and these great leaders of the Reformation being burned by Mary. But Mary also, you know, was... Uh, uh, 
kind of a nut in a lot of ways. <laughs> and she, uh, well, I guess that's kind of not terrible to say um, because it's kind of how history remembers her. I mean, it's pretty accurate. I mean, she had cobblers burned, pregnant women, uh, people that were mentally handicapped and maybe didn't even fully know why they were being burned. Yeah, let's burn them too. She then married King Philip I of Spain, and the British hate, or the English hated the Spanish. So that was just a really bad political decision. Um, and together, they believed that they were the you know the hammer of God upon the Protestant movement. And this, of course, did not go her way um, when she was deposed um, and replaced by Queen Elizabeth who reigned from 1558 to 1603. Elizabeth, the, the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth, the, the queen that um, so many of us have a deep admiration for as she ruled over England and in many ways formed it into what would later become an empire. Now, these three figures really helpfully illustrate the English Reformation. Because what we see is two poles in a synthesis. Two poles in a synthesis. So Edward is the true Reformation pole. He is driving things towards um, a full Reformation where the word of God is in God's people's hands, in, their, in the language of the people, informing the people with prayer, uh, with pastoral care, with a, a true society captivated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Mary, on the other end of the extreme spectrum, is a regressive monarch who's trying to drive things back to Rome. And in various people all over England, they sided with one or the other. They were either true Protestants or they were true Catholics. And then there was just a vast swath of people in the middle who really just wanted to make it till tomorrow in the hard you know, difficulties of the 16th century in England. And then Elizabeth takes the throne and says, listen, I'm really fed up with all of these religious conflicts and I really want to stay in power. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try our best to make everyone a little bit mad, but not raging mad right? Nobody's happy, but at least they're not killing each other. And this is what we have, what would later be called the Elizabethan settlement in Anglicanism, or what would later be called the Via Media. Many of you have heard that Anglicanism is the Via Media, this middle ground between Catholicism, Mary, and Protestantism, Edward. Uh, it's this settlement where, you know, the Puritans who wanted to push further than Edward were silenced and cast out of England. And the Roman Catholics who wanted to bring back Mary were not tolerated even a little bit, right? So what we have here is a political measure similar to Henry VIII to bring back a sense of stability and control through the church by having England be a little bit Protestant and a little bit Catholic, and this is where you actually see the complexities of Anglicanism ever since. You know, often you'll hear people say, you know, Anglicanism is Catholic light. Anglicanism is Protestantism light. Or Anglicanism is just a flat out third thing between, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism. And I would say that's really to misunderstand history and jump in history past Cranmer, uh, past the early reformers and all the way up to Elizabeth. 
And I don't think that's actually very helpful history or accurate history. We are a people that are as Protestant as they come because we are influenced by the humanistic impulse to return to the sources, to return to the scriptures themselves, and to allow that to set our reason, our tradition, and our minds. Hmm. And this might be, this next question might be um, another way to say the last question, but what, what are the biggest lessons you want us to know from this history? Today, I gave you at best a gloss. The thing I would like you to do is if you ever decide to go back and read Anglican church history is really look at the conviction and the bravery of the people uh, who came before us, men and women who were captivated by Jesus Christ in their lives and were willing to risk their lives and their livelihood to follow him. And that, those are the stories that I, I wish that uh, we spent more time looking at um, to see great heroes of the faith who came before us because there are so many in the English Reformation. Well, I think this is a good place to end this episode. Thank you, Tim, for your time. In the next episode, we'll be discussing the history of our communion, the Anglican Church of North America. Thank you for joining us on this episode, and we hope to see you in the next one. For more resources or information about Trinity Anglican Church, please visit trinitylittleton.com.